The National Constitution Center inspires active citizenship as the only place in these polarized times where people across America and around the world can come together to learn about, debate, and celebrate the greatest vision of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution. Please support us by becoming a member and learn more at constitutioncenter.org. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in today's show, we explore one of the most hotly contested issues in all of constitutional law, namely whether a woman has a constitutional right to terminate her pregnancy and what limits, if any, can be placed on that right. In 1973, in the famous case of Roe v. Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court held that the right to an abortion falls within a right to privacy protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And in 1992, in Planned Parenthood and Casey, uh, the Supreme Court affirmed the core of Roe, and the case in, originated here in Pennsylvania. The state legislature enacted regulations governing access to abortion. Uh, the rules included informed consent and a mandatory 24-hour waiting period before having an abortion. Uh, in its 5-4 to four ruling, the court held that women have a right to choose abortion before fetal viability, but it also upheld many of Pennsylvania's regulations. And in upholding those regulations, uh, Casey said that regulations serving the state's interest in protecting women's health uh, and in protecting unborn life may be permissible if they don't impose an undue burden on the woman's right to choose. And then uh, the Casey case defined undue burden. It said that a law imposes an undue burden if a law's purpose or effect is to place a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. Uh, the cases we'll discuss today all address whether laws regulating abortion providers provide an undue burden within the meaning of this standard. And we're going to start and focus on Texas House Bill 2, which was passed in 2013. It enacted new requirements for abortion clinics and doctors providing abortions in a case called Whole Woman's Health. Uh, abortion providers challenged two provisions of the law in court, and on June 9th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit upheld them. On June 29th, the U.S. Supreme Court put the Fifth Circuit's ruling on hold to allow time for an appeal, and there's now a petition asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review that case. Joining me to sort through this fascinating debate and to tell us where the Texas case is going next are two lawyers on the front lines of this case and two of the nation's leading authorities on the questions we'll be discussing. Stephanie Totti is senior counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights and an adjunct associate professor of law at Fordham Law School. She is lead attorney on the team challenging Texas House Bill 2. Emily Kibodeau is general counsel at Texas Right to Life. She was involved in efforts to pass uh, the Texas law. Uh, and I'm going to begin with Emily. Can you tell us more about the provisions of Texas House Bill 2? What does it require of abortion clinics and providers? And can you tell us uh, what the purpose of the bill was? Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on. I look forward to uh, today's conversation. So House Bill 2 um, was has four parts. Uh, one is banning abortions after five months of pregnancy in the state of Texas. And then the other three, uh, which are the subject of what has been the subject of litigation uh, and talking about clinic regulations and uh, regulations on abortion doctors. Uh, the first is requiring admitting privileges of uh 
abortion doctor within 30 miles uh, of where they are performing abortions. Uh, the second one is upgrading, uh, complying, abortion clinics uh, complying with what we call ambulatory surgical centers, um, upgrading surgical facilities to ensure that they comply with what our code defines as ambulatory surgical centers. And uh, the third was requiring the RU486 pill to be distributed according to FDA protocol. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, Stephanie, can you tell us a little more about the legal and constitutional challenge to Texas House Bill 2? What's the basis for the claim and how have courts ruled in addressing this and similar challenges? Absolutely. And I'd, I'd also like to just take a moment to thank you, Jeff, for uh, for convening this discussion on a, a very important and timely set of issues. The whole woman's health case is concerned with two of the provisions of Texas House Bill 2, the ambulatory surgery center requirement, um, which would essentially require abortion clinics um, to become mini hospitals and meet extensive um, and burdensome construction requirements, um, which the district court determined after trial would, would cost um, millions of dollars, so multi-million dollar facilities requirements. The case also concerns the admitting privileges requirement which um, prohibits a doctor from performing an abortion in Texas unless the doctor has um, admitting privileges, as Emily said, at a hospital within 30 miles of where the abortion is performed. Together, these requirements would serve to close more than 75% of the abortion clinics in Texas. And most of these clinics have been providing safe abortion care for decades. So these two requirements would, would devastate women's ability to access safe and legal abortion services in Texas, which is the second most populous state in the nation, home to more than 5.4 million women of reproductive age. Um, the legal challenge to the laws is based on the standard articulated in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which provides that the decision um, whether to continue or, or end a pregnancy is central to the liberty that is protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, and as a result, states cannot enact laws that impose an undue burden on that decision. These laws, um, the evidence showed conclusively at trial, will do nothing um, to promote women's health. Abortion um, nationwide and as practiced in Texas is, is an extremely safe procedure, um, very low rates of, of complication, much safer than many other kinds of procedures that are typically performed in outpatient settings. Um, these laws won't do anything to enhance the safety of abortion, but instead um, they will actually increase the risks that women face because of the dramatic reduction in access um, to safe abortion services. So some women, um, as a result of these laws, will be unable to obtain abortions. Um, some women will be significantly delayed in their ability to obtain abortions. 
Um, and some women will uh, try to take matters into their own hands. And unfortunately, that's, um, you know, a, a trend that had decreased for, for many years following the, the court's decision in Roe, but um, in, in, in recent uh, years has, has been on the rise, uh, particularly in, in places where women don't have adequate access to safe abortion services. Um, so the, that is the, the crux of the, the legal issue that's presented in the case, whether these restrictions amount to undue burdens on women's ability to access abortion services. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Emily, Stephanie quoted the language from Casey defining undue burden as a law that has, quote, the purpose or effect of imposing a substantial obstacle, end quote, to a woman's ability to choose how have courts interpreted those words, and in your view, what d- does and should substantial obstacle mean? And the, she's exactly right that the undue burden issue, uh, what the Supreme Court, if they take the HB2 case, what they will have, you know, guidance, they will issue guidance for states um, on, on clear guidance on what do they mean by undue burden. I think we can all agree that uh, with the circuit splits, uh, with the circuit splits and, and the different tests, that have emerged um, that, you know, there, there is guidance needing to be had on, on what does an undue burden mean. Um, the, some of the different, the circuit splits, uh, the Seventh and Ninth Circuit, for instance, they have adopted a balancing test. Um, how much does the regulation that, whether it be 30 miles or ambulatory surgical centers or provision of the RE486, how much does the regulation promote uh, the claimed the health interest versus the extent of the burden, and, and it's kind of a balancing test. The three other circuits, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, have rejected this balancing test, and so the question, SCOTUS, one of the questions that SCOTUS would be looking at is how does the, does the undue burden test permit um, such a balancing uh, a balancing of factors? Um, in the undue burden test, we've got Differencing, difference of opinion on how to uh, count the large fraction test. Uh, I think the Fifth Circuit uh, has, uh, has, has looked at the large fraction test a different way than uh, the Seventh and Ninth Circuits, and uh, so that'll be one of the questions uh, resolved uh, on that. Great. So we've really joined the issue. Thank you for that very helpful summary of the circuit split. Uh, Stephanie, uh, do you agree with uh, Emily's description of the circuit split? And if, if you think she's stated it accurately, which of the definitions of undue burden do you expect the Supreme Court to adopt and why? Um, <clears throat> I don't disagree with Emily's characterization, but I, I would add just a, a tad more detail. Um, while the, the Seventh and Ninth Circuits do ultimately adopt a balancing test um, as an initial matter, they made clear that the undue burden standard articulated in Casey requires courts to engage in meaningful scrutiny of whether um, regulations that are enacted based on the state's interest in promoting women's health actually serve that interest. Um, so those courts require um, a, a hard look at the evidence to determine whether um, there's any medical justification for um, these laws that would um, 
restrict access to abortion services. And then once that inquiry is complete, if the law, if there is some evidence that the law will advance its, its interest, then the courts say then we have to compare that, um, compare the, the expected benefits from the law to the burdens they will impose on women's access to abortion to determine whether those burdens are undue um, in relation to the, the expected benefits. In the whole women's health case, um, the evidence at trial conclusively established that, that these laws will provide no benefit to women whatsoever, that, that they won't do anything to enhance the safety of abortion procedures. Um, one expert witness looked at, um, compared abortions performed currently in Texas um, in abortion clinics to abortions currently performed in Texas at ambulatory surgery centers. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the data showed that there was no, no, um, no difference in the complication rates, or rather um, there was a complications actually occurred at a slightly higher level um, at the ambulatory surgery centers than, than at the abortion clinics. Um, so there is there, there is a lot of evidence at the trial um, that led the the district court to conclude that these requirements would 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 do nothing to further um, the state's interest in health and um, and and in fact were were so poorly designed to serve that interest that it, it suggested pretext on the part of the legislature that these laws were really designed to to close abortion clinics. Um, and that is their major effect to close 75% of the clinics in Texas. Um, the Fifth Circuit's uh, decision holding that there's no need for, for courts to engage in any kind of meaningful scrutiny of the rationale for an abortion restriction, nor to balance um, the benefits of a law uh, against its, its burdens, is not faithful to the Supreme Court's prior precedents, including Casey, um, and also Gonzalez v. Carhart, which followed Casey, where the Supreme Court was looking at the constitutionality of a law that banned a particular method of abortion. And while the court ultimately upheld that law, it did it only after it engaged in, in meaningful scrutiny of the kind I've been talking about, and affirmed that uh, courts, federal courts, have an independent constitutional duty um, to probe legislative findings to to confirm that they are accurate. So I think um, I, I, I certainly think that the the seventh and ninth circuits are on the right side, the correct side of this split, and that the Supreme Court. Um, is is quite likely to um, to reaffirm that that the undue burden standard set forth in Casey does indeed require meaningful scrutiny um, of a law that that restricts abortion. Thanks for that, Emily. I, I gather you were involved in efforts to uh, pass uh, the House bill in question. Was its purpose to uh, impose burdens on a woman's right to choose, or was it purely a health measure? From the view of the legislators and those championing uh, the bill, like we were, um, the the purpose, and I know other people debate this, but the purpose was 
to increase health safety, uh, the safety of women who are seeking and obtaining abortions, since that is something that occurs within our state. Uh, and we didn't want to wait until we had uh, a high profile, uh, like what happened with uh, Dr. Gosnell uh, in Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, I, you know, we didn't want to wait until we had something, a tragic, horrific incident like that to happen. Uh, before we took legislative measures, uh, we wanted to, to preempt uh, if any of that was going on. And, and I know I'm right down, uh, our office is right down in the middle of Houston, and, and we're not far from uh, Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast, which is the largest surgical abortion center uh, in the nation. And by efforts, uh, people just watching and around, there are instances where uh, that is a, a licensed ambulatory surgical center. Uh, that performs abortions, but you know we we hear the stories of women needing to be rushed to the hospital. And, and if you're in a clinic, if you happen to be in a facility that doesn't have uh, that doesn't have halls wide enough to have an emergency stretcher and, and take the woman to uh, a hospital, I mean that's that, that is a concern. That can be a matter of life and death for for the mother, and, and that's something um, you know we, we care about both lives, and and that's uh, why. We, you know, one of the reasons we champion House Bill too. I think going towards um, the the undue burden uh, undue burden issue. You know, Casey said regulations are okay if they if if it, the regulations don't reach into the heart of the abortion decision. And and to me, some of the difference between uh, some of the circuits, for instance, the fifth versus the seventh and ninth circuits, um, the some of the circuits look at undue burden as is it an undue burden on the physicians, and then would that trickle down to uh, women seeking abortions? And I, I, that's, you know, money to cost to comply uh, with these regulations if you're putting a burden on the facility or uh, the burden on a physician does that trickle down? Does that They're, they're equating that undue burden, on, a, a burden on the facility and abortion doctors the same as an undue burden on a woman to make the decision uh, on of whether or not to seek an abortion, and I, I think that's one uh, one difference uh, in, in the analysis that we we can see through the different circuit court opinions. Uh, Stephanie Emily has just said very powerfully that she and others involved with the passage of uh, the House bill uh, were concerned about women's health. How should courts evaluate uh, legislative motivations? What in Casey or in the Constitution has uh, empowered some circuits to say that this was a pretext? How, how deferential should courts be to legislative determinations? And, and, and also, what's your response to her second point about focusing not on the burden on clinics but on women? Well, the Supreme Court has made clear over and over again, including in Gonzalez, that courts should not act as a mere rubber stamp for legislative enactments and and, um, legislative articulation of purpose. Um, But it doesn't matter um, whether the the purpose of this law um, was improper or not. what is clear, um, uh, conclusive based on the evidentiary record, is that even if the, the purpose of the law was to promote women's health, the requirements are not reasonably designed to achieve that purpose. Um, they are ineffectual. They will not, in fact, 
um, serve to promote women's health. They will only serve uh, to make abortion less accessible to women. But at the same time, because the undue burden test includes a purpose prong, because it mandates a purpose inquiry, um, meaningful scrutiny of the laws is necessary. The court could not competently carry out its responsibility under the purpose prong if it's not allowed to look behind the legislature's statement of purpose to see whether there's any evidence of, of pretext. And the court, um, you know, over the years in a variety of contexts has um, has said that, you know, there are many different kinds of, of evidence that may serve to show that a law is pretextual, um, including the effect of the law. Um, and the, the court has said that we should presume that, you know, a legislature, um, that a law is going to do what the legislature intended it to do. So if the law, um, you know, doesn't advance women's health but does close 75% of the clinics in the state, well, you know, we should presume that, that that's what the legislature intended for it to do. Um, and the court has actually said you have to look at um, the extent to which um, the law is going to be uh, uh, effective in achieving its goals in, you know, in determining whether, you know, those, those were really its goals or, you know, or there is something else going on. Um, here, we shouldn't overlook the fact that these laws um, are targeted only at abortion providers. Um, Texas allows doctors um, in all other specialties to perform surgeries in their office without meeting any of these requirements. If these requirements were really needed, were really important um, in promoting health, then you would expect them to be generally applicable. You would expect all doctors um, to have to satisfy the requirements, but because they're targeted only at abortion providers, it strongly suggests that their real goal is to limit abortion and not to improve the, the health and safety of, of Texas women. In terms of the um, obstacles imposed by the law, here, the evidence showed that the, the challenged requirements would be responsible for closing more than 75% of clinics in the state. That means that many women are now going to have to travel long distances in order to obtain abortions, distances of 200 miles or more, um, and that in and of itself is an undue burden uh, for a lot of women, particularly those who have to arrange for child care or need to take time off from work or are trying to keep their, their pregnancy and plans for an abortion confidential from people in their lives who, um, you know, who, who may do them harm if they were to find out about it. Um, the, the widespread closure of clinics also means that women are, um, are going to have to wait longer to get appointments. There's now a much smaller pool of doctors and facilities providing services, but there's the same level of demand for those services in the state. So women are, are, are going to have to wait significantly longer, um, in order to end their pregnancies and, and some women who, uh, you know, could have had an abortion very early in pregnancy, um, you know, may, may get pushed into the second trimester, and there are 
some women who um, will be delayed past the point when abortion is legal in Texas. And as, as Emily said, HB2, in addition to imposing all of these restrictions on the clinics, it also um, in, imposed a, an outright ban on abortion beginning at 20 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and so women who are delayed past that point can't get an abortion in Texas at all. So the, the combined effects of these two laws are, are truly devastating in terms of women's access to abortion and, and threaten to create a real public health crisis in Texas. Emily, Stephanie made a number of points, including stressing that Casey said the law is invalid if its purpose or effect places the substantial obstacle. She says regardless of whether or not uh, the legislature had a good purpose, uh, the thing can fall if it has the effect of placing a substantial obstacle. And she notes that uh, there were once more than 40 clinics and after the law, fewer than 10, and suggests that that by itself is an impermissible effect. How do you think that the Supreme Court should define an impermissible effect under the undue burden test? Well, first I want to just briefly address the argument that HB2 requirements uh, would not be related to patient health or, or help increase patient safety. Uh, of course, we disagree. You know, our position, of course, we disagree that uh, the presence of ambulatory surgical center requirements or 30-mile rules would not help uh, patients. We, we believe that they will. I mean, if you look at the grand jury report for the Dr. Gosnell, um, the grand jury report cited that the emergency uh, vehicles were at the clinic and they discovered they could not maneuver stretchers through the building's narrow hallways. Now, like I mentioned with the large Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast on 45 here in Houston, if a woman uh, it happens to that be the abortion facility she chooses and something goes wrong, she has the ability at that point to uh, have emergency care. But if we're not requiring that of all abortion facilities, then some of these women in uh, any other, in any other communities, they won't have the same access to emergency care, uh, and it would be a repeat of Dr. Gosnell's what what happened. I can never say the young lady's name uh, correctly, Miss Monger, um, but we would have a repeat um, of that, and that's just not something that we felt as a state uh, would should be the case should be the case here. Uh, the the impermissible burden. Uh, under Casey, you know, there's lots of talk uh, talk about increased travel distances and, um, you know, what what constitutes a substantial obstacle. I f did you? I'm sorry. Did you ask what what I think the final outcome of Casey uh, um, of Supreme Court for HB2 would be on impermissible burden? Uh, yes, that would be great. Okay, sorry. Just wanted. No, no, it was a long question. <laughs> wanted to make sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that the Supreme Court will will rule that patient-related safety measures uh, that you know require less than 500 miles round trip that, that that they'll say that it's a factor that some of these uh, a factor and defer uh, the undue burden to looking at the whole picture uh, and not simply doing away with the state's interest in protecting either fetal life or health of the mother, uh, and they're going to kind of expand uh, the uh, state deference uh, to states being able to uh, protect and regulate surgical situations that we put our patients under. Great. Thanks for that. Um, 
Stephanie, help us channel the mind of Justice Kennedy. After all, uh, like many cases, this one will come down to his vote. He joined the four liberal justices in deciding to grant a stay in this case. Uh, how is he likely to view the application of the undue burden test, and is he likely to uphold HB2 or not? Absolutely. Um, first, I would just like to note that several leading medical associations, including the American Medical Association, the Texas Medical Association, and the American College of Obstetricians and, and Gynecologists, have gone on record strongly opposing um, the, the requirements challenged in, in whole women's health um, and arguing to the court in amicus briefs that those restrictions fail to provide any medical benefit to, to patients. Um, in terms of Justice Kennedy, Justice Kennedy was one of the authors of the, the joint opinion in Casey that adopted the undue burden standard, and we fully expect that Justice Kennedy will abide by um, the promise of Casey that abortion is... Um, a fundamental liberty that's protected by the due process clause, um, one that is, is central to women's dignity and personal autonomy, and uh, that warrants special protection by the courts. Um, Justice Kennedy was, was also the author of the court's decision in Gonzalez, um, where the court said that um, Federal courts in general have an independent constitutional duty um, to uh, review legislative findings and ensure that constitutional rights aren't aren't burdened um, for no good reason or for the wrong reasons. Um, so, based on 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 the statements in in Casey and Gonzalez. Uh, we fully hope and expect that Justice Kennedy will um, endorse the formulation of the undue burden test that's been adopted by the Seventh and Ninth Circuits, the one that requires meaningful scrutiny of the extent to which uh, a law enacted for purportedly health-related reasons actually advances women's health um, and will further hold that the 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 burdens um, imposed by such a law can't be undue um, in, in relation to their justification. Thanks so much. Emily, if I could ask you to channel Justice Kennedy's vote. As Stephanie mentioned, he did uh, join the decision in Gonzales upholding the federal uh, partial birth abortion law and seeming to be more deferential about legislative determinations about the, he the health effects of abortion restrictions. How do you expect him to vote in this case if the court takes it, and on what grounds? Well, I think that he, Kennedy, could uh, uphold could uphold the central tenets of Roe, but also find for House Bill, uh, find for House Bill 2 in recognizing the patient interest safety. Um, I know she, she mentioned, uh, Stephanie mentioned, discussion about uh, Texas Medical Association and American Medical Association. Now, I'm at the state level. I don't have much uh, contact with the AMA, but do regular contact with the TMA, and I, you know, I, I, their actions in the Texas legislature are not, are not really nonpartisan, and so um, I would be hesitant to 
to put uh, a blanket, I use them as a uh, middle ground neutral neutral party on patient patient rights uh, when we're talking about um, abortion laws or any sort of patient-centric laws that come out in Texas. Um, I think I think Kennedy could hold, uh, sorry, I already said the central tenants in a row, but uphold household to uh, in, in deference that, you know, I, I disagree with Stephanie that the uh, Fifth Circuit opinion is going through meaningful scrutiny. Um, I think they, they've taken into consideration distances to McAllen and El Paso clinics. Um, they've taken into con- written extensively on um, what percentage of women that we're talking about here. And I, I think that uh, the Fifth Circuit did go into meaningful scrutiny, uh, but of, of course, my position, I hope Kennedy <laughs> uh, sides with Texas in, uh, in, in this case, and, and so that's kind of where my, my thoughts lie. Great. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, when I teach constitutional law, often uh, I ask students to write a memo to Justice Kennedy in cases where he seems to be undecided, trying to persuade him of the view they find most constitutionally persuasive. So since it's time for closing arguments, I think I'll do exactly that and ask you, Stephanie, you, you filed a brief in the case. If you were arguing before the Supreme Court to Justice Kennedy, uh, what would you tell him about why House Bill 2 is unconstitutional? I would tell the court that um, House Bill 2 is unconstitutional because it would serve to close 75% of the abortion clinics in Texas while serving no valid state interest whatsoever. The law has no medical justification. The evidence at trial showed overwhelmingly that it wouldn't enhance the safety of abortion or provide other benefits to abortion patients, but it would severely curtail women's access to safe and legal abortion, um, threatening their rights, um, their health, and their dignity by uh, denying them the ability to make um, uh, and effectuate this decision that uh, is accorded protection under the Constitution. Given the the challenges that will now face women as a result of of these laws, if if they are allowed to be put in force, um, they are undoubtedly undue burdens on the right. And the fact that they serve no medical purpose whatsoever strongly indicates that um, they should be struck down. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and same question uh, to you, Emily. If you're arguing before the Supreme Court to Justice Kennedy, what would you tell him about why House Bill 2 is consistent with the Constitution? My first argument would be in recognizing that these health-related measures do uh, help increase the safety of women seeking abortions within the state and, and that second that they're Protecting women's health uh, is a valid state interest, uh, both through all spectrums uh, of a woman's life, and, and including during her pregnancy, and that these regulations uh, go at the heart of abortion clinics and physician credentials that we've seen across the board uh, upheld with physician credentials, uh, and they don't go into the heart of the abortion decision itself, so they're not uh, they're not against Casey. They 
we can uh, the, the valid the valid state interest in protecting women's health uh, is right, and uh, these clinics aren't these regulations aren't telling women that they can't have abortions. They're they're not outlawing aspects um, of abortion, and, and they're not going to the heart of the abortion decision. Thank you so much, Stephanie Toti and Emily Kibido, for an illuminating, substantive, nuanced, and educational discussion of one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of our time. Today's show is engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions about the show to editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this great podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org membership to learn more. And of course, please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.